News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how does it feel for the woman who's at the heart of those allegations of inappropriate behavior against retired General Jonathan Vance? How does it feel for her to hear about his guilty plea in court after everything she has been through? Well, to talk more about that story this morning, we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, who's our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, host of the West Block, who has been extensively covering the story the last couple of years. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. So much of what we know about this comes from this one particular person. How is she feeling? Well, Kelly hasn't spoken um, publicly, and I, I don't think we'll hear from her for a while. It's It's been um, extraordinarily difficult on her, on her family. Um, she has seven children with her, and she's a single mom. Um, it's a lot. You can imagine even just handling lawyers for what she'll have to deal with now in terms of family court uh, and custody. That's a lot of money. Uh, it's a lot of stress going into work every day and being the woman uh, who brought down a former chief of the defense staff and, and has triggered all of this internal reflection in the military about the culture and the way that people are treated, not just uh, sexual misconduct, but other power dynamics that are happening in the military, accountability, corruption, all kinds of questions. Um, and I know that that was very hard on Kelly. She she believes in what she did. And in her witness, uh, pardon me, in her victim impact statement, she says that she received emails, around 200 emails, from women in the Canadian Armed Forces who'd been through similar situations. Uh, and I know that that was something she spent a lot of time on. We were talking in the days and weeks after this. Um, I think maybe one day Kelly will give another interview, but for now she's really focusing on on looking after herself and looking after her children. Um, and you can imagine, in particular, for her one child who she shares with uh, General Vance, who who denied this child existed to us and now uh, wants partial custody potentially. That's a really yeah. tough thing to have to deal with, just on a on a personal level. Yeah, that sounds awful, given what she has gone through. Mercedes, can you remind us again about what happened here when she when Kelly first came forward? It was really no like nobody was listening to her at that point. There was just nothing but denial. Yeah, it was it was denial. Um, I I was told by the prime minister in our year end interview the brass told him that this is not a problem. It's not a thing. You know, ignore it, kind of. Um, and I, I remember talking to people in the government, senior people in the military, and saying, uh, you need to know we have evidence. This is not an off-the-cuff claim. It happened. Um, we have text messages. We have phone logs. Uh, I have photographs. I have evidence that what we are saying happened um, is, in fact, what happened. It's not just someone making allegations that we are spuriously running. Um, these things happened, and we have voice recordings. And uh, as you've seen, the number of those came out, and they were actually referenced in court. Uh, and I was somewhat surprised to see John Vance plead guilty. And that agreed-upon statement of facts um, included parts where the Crown read out parts of tape recordings um, that we had used in our reporting. Uh, so that that was interesting because it was flat out denial from people, especially from people in the Vance camp, um, who were at points calling other media outlets and telling them that we were making this up. Um, 
none of those media outlets believed that that was the case. But it sort of gives you a sense of what was going on behind the scenes during all this. So it was somewhat astounding to me uh, that that then the tune changed completely. And there was an admission uh, not only about the relationship, about the child, but also about the obstruction of justice, which he pled guilty to. All right. So what happens next here? So really, you know, for John Vance, the legal part of this is over unless he breaches his probation. He does not receive a criminal record despite pleading uh, guilty to a criminal offense. That's not uncommon necessarily in, in a plea bargain deal as sort of um, shocking as it has been for some people to see. And there's concerns about the message that sends um, to other people coming forward. But he will have to report for probation for a year. He has to do 80 hours of community service, and he has to pay a court surcharge. Uh, if he does all of those things, the legal part of this ends after a year for him, and he can go on with his life. But there's still questions about what's going to happen with some of his honors and awards, for example. He has the Order of Military Merit. He could potentially be stripped of that uh, if the committee in the military that recommended him for it decides to reverse that decision. The governor general can decide to take that. Uh, and it has some interesting perks, like being treated in a very famous private French hospital, vacation properties, things we didn't know came with hmm. that that we found out uh, when we started to research that. So that's certainly one possibility is that he could still be stripped of that. As far as military justice, there's nothing they can do. He's out. He was too high ranking anyhow. Um, but at, at this point, that's sort of what's still potentially um, on in the future for John Vance. Um, And, uh, you know, of course, we'll continue to stay on top of that story, too. I know you will. Mercedes, thank you. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block with the latest on the ongoing saga of the former Chief of Defence Staff, Jonathan Vance. This is Mornings with Simi. Really feels like everybody went out and got themselves a pet during the pandemic, right? Especially dogs. There are dogs everywhere I go now. I walk up my dog, which we've had for nine years, turn a corner and it's dogs everywhere. But you know where the problem comes in? Trying to find veterinary care. It's either, you know, very difficult to even find a veterinarian. It's even harder to get in and get an appointment with a veterinarian. Well, now it turns out BC is going to be doing something about that. Joining us to talk about it is Anne Kang, the Minister of Advanced Education and Skills Training, MLA for Burnaby Deer Lake. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi, and good to join you here. Hi, everyone. What are we doing about this? How are we going to help people find a veterinarian? Um, well, there's, there are so many solutions, um, but just yesterday uh, we announced uh, new funding of $10.68 million to double the number of provincially subsidized vet seats available at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. And um, so formerly every year we have 20 going into uh, this college, this year 40. And that brings us to a total number of British Columbian students of 124 just this year. But that's sending people to Saskatchewan, right? That that is. Um, so we, we do have interprovincial agreement. Uh, there are no uh, veterinarian uh, colleges in the Western provinces. So um, previously, four provinces: British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. Um, we we have an interprovincial agreement, and so this is a long-standing agreement um, that helps ensure that the college is is providing what we need. So there is enrollment quota. So that's why we have twenty. Uh, but since then. Um, 
Alberta has vacated the seat uh, a few years ago. And so um, we, we look for funding to see what we can do to support our veterinarians here in BC. And so this year we found funding for 20 extra more seats. Um, that means in, in four years, we'll see 40 more graduates in um, this uh, college and coming back, hopefully, to BC um, and supporting us here. Okay, but you just said coming back, hopefully. So even if we support them there, there's no guarantee that they're going to come back here and open a veterinary practice. Well, there is no guarantee, but we know as, as a track record and the data shows us that not only all of our veterinarians um, or most of our veterinarians do come back to uh, British Columbia, but also those from other provinces also choose to come to um, BC. So um, our, our BC veterinarians, 50% of them are uh, graduates from colleges and um, the other 50% are uh, filling our labor force through alternate sources such as um, interprovincial migration um, or BC students returning home after being trained internationally and as well immigration. So if the demand is there, then why not open a college or or train people closer to home, like right here in BC? Well, it it is something that that we did look at, um, but it it is actually um, quite expensive for us to do that. And so um, it's a very long and expensive undertaking. Um, But we also recognize that through our interprovincial um, agreement that we have built a foundation. Um, WCVM is an internationally recognized veterinarian training, and um, it provides us with exceptional value. Um, So the most effective way to use our BC dollars is to uh, focus on opening more programs for BC students, and that's what we've done. Uh, This is a very urgent issue, as you have uh, talked about. Many people have uh, chosen to have animal companions, and, and we want to make sure that we're supporting veterinarians with the need that they have. But opening seats are not the only thing that we're doing. Um, we also have um, registered veterinarian technologists at Douglas College and Thompson River University, and every single year we graduate 50 of them. And, and I've also heard that there are a number, like just so many veterinarians who are just burned out. They are stressed out. They are burned out because they have been, you know, working to the max during the pandemic. Are you concerned that we're actually we're going to lose people out of the field? I, I am definitely very concerned and I'm just so grateful for all the veterinarians, whether they're caring for pets or for animals or livestock. And this year has been a very, very challenging one uh, in addition to uh, the pandemic and everything that we've um, been going through. Um, I, I am very concerned about burnout, um, but also uh, the Minister of Mental Health is working hard to provide mental health services, support services for, for all labor um, workforce, and that includes veterinarians. So I hope a multi-pronged approach to supporting veterinarians will keep them in uh, BC and keep them working. And I know they love animals so I want to support them all the way. I understand as well like with the flooding situation that we had here last November did that also kind of show the government that we have a problem here because we needed so many veterinarians at that point to help care for the livestock? Um, we, we definitely knew there were were uh, shortages of veterinarians, and since I became Minister of Advanced Education and Skilled Training, I have been working very hard with um, my stakeholders, the college, um, and, and the Minister of Agriculture, Foods, and, and Fishery, to, to make sure that we can find a solution. And, and we know that uh, funding seats is just one of the solutions. Um, other solutions are, as I talked about, the interprovincial migration, students returning home internationally, and immigration. And, and I will continue to look for strong solutions to support veterinarians. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that today.
Thank you. That is Anne Kang, Minister of Advanced Education and Skills Training. So what the BC government is doing here is that they are doubling the number of seats that it is going to subsidize for a veterinary college. Now, the only one in Western Canada, as it was just explained to us, is in Saskatchewan. So BC had 20 seats there that the government was subsidizing. Now they are going to have 40 seats at this college for students from BC to go and become veterinarians. No guarantee they'll come back to BC though and open up that practice, but you know, sounds like a lot of them will anyway. But here's the thing. I mean, that it is challenging. It's not just about training people because this is going to be four years away. It is challenging for anybody right now to try to find veterinary care for their pets. And I know veterinarians out there are definitely feeling overworked and just really close to burnout, I think, in so many cases. Now, if it's been difficult for you to try to find pet care or animal care during the last couple of years, let me know about that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What are we doing about our overdose crisis? I mean, since January of 2016, almost 25,000 people have died across Canada, and we are still struggling big time with this issue here in British Columbia. I mean, the numbers keep going up no matter how much we talk about it. Well, one of the things that does get talked about is this idea of decriminalization. Now, we know that Prime Minister Trudeau said during that 2021 federal election campaign that it wasn't necessarily something his government was looking to bring in. However, jurisdictions can ask the federal government for exemptions to allow people to have small amounts of substances such as cocaine, heroin and fentanyl. Vancouver did this already. They have asked for this back in May of 2021. Toronto has now done the same. So jurisdictions are asking, but how much closer are we to making any progress on this? Joining us now is Mary Claire Zach, who's a Managing Director of Social Policy at the City of Vancouver. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, where do we stand with this request with the federal government? Well, we've submitted our request almost a year ago in May, and um, you know the the hope was that we would have a response very very soon. But as as you and listeners know, we had a federal election um, during that period. Uh, we are continuing to be in conversation. Um, I think the good news is they haven't said no yet. <laughs> um, so we are, um, I would say, impatiently waiting uh, for a response. Okay, so what would this do then? How would this work if they say, okay, Vancouver can do this? Well, I think just to provide some context, we should also, um, listeners should also be aware that the province of BC has also um, put forward a, a request as well. And so we have committed to uh, working uh, together and in tandem with the province of BC on this. What would it look like in Vancouver, though, if our application was accepted, perhaps in tandem with the, the provinces, is that we would see that small amounts of drugs that you identified um, would be um, exempt from being um, uh, taken or confiscated from uh, people and who are substance users. And the hope with this is that it would uh, decrease people's feeling of stigma, being stigmatized by uh, using illicit drugs, that it would um, reduce criminalization um, so that uh, people wouldn't get their drugs confiscated. And therefore, having to go seek drugs from a, you know, a, perhaps an unknown dealer or an unknown source, and hopefully, it would also um, support people to get access to treatment. 
right? So all of these things that we we are um, we've identified as um, outcomes for right. this. That those are hopes, though, as you mentioned there. That's those right. are goals. So what? But what do we know? Is there evidence that this approach could work? Well, there is some evidence. We've got uh, places like Portugal, for example, uh, who have a, a decriminalization model. Closer to home, we have, um, you know, Oregon in, in the United States. Um, I think one of the things that um, advocates and uh, people who use drugs are looking for and watching for are the actual threshold amounts that are allowed through this should the exemption be approved. I was going to talk about Oregon there too, because they went forward with the decriminalization there last year. How do you know, do you have any idea of how it's working down there? Is the city of Vancouver studying that? Yeah, we're monitoring it. One of the things that has, has come out is that the, the actual deaths have not decreased and there's, you know, there's a tie there to the actual amount of drugs that people are allowed to have on them, and which is, you know, one of the things in Vancouver and that we've seen in the province too is that we're our application starting off with a very modest amount, um, and based on research, we were hoping to look at increasing that amount um, because the the current research we know is outdated. So that would be one of the first things that we would have done. Uh, probably by now would have had uh, more research to identify what those threshold amounts ought to be. Are there things that you like about the Oregon approach? I know what they did there is that they made they made possession of small amounts uh, punishable by a like a civil citation, like a parking ticket and a hundred dollar fine. But the fine gets waived if you get a health screening from a recovery hotline. So you still have to have that connection into the healthcare system in order to get your fine waived. Is Vancouver looking at something like that? You know, we're not looking at that. We, what we, those kinds of things we would see as being um, uh, coercive, right? So what we're looking at is if, if there was contact with law enforcement, was that there be a referral, right? And that referral would be, you know, as much as a police officer giving a card to somebody. Um, what we, what we know is, is that those models sometimes don't work, right? That the idea of ticketing people, even though the ticket gets, gets waived. So that's something that we, um, uh, that is different from our application as opposed to Oregon's. Okay. So clearly there's a lot of experimenting going on right now, isn't there, Mary Claire, just of how to deal with this problem? Because we're not the only ones struggling with this. We're not the only ones struggling with this. And it's very, very, it's very, very new. Um, What's interesting is around the same time, about 100 years ago, we were also getting through a pandemic, is that we um, legalized alcohol, which was uh, also uh, prohibited at that time. So it's not as though we haven't dealt with illicit substances before and and, um, trying to um, make it better for people and make things safer for people. Uh, but we're in a different time and these are different substances. Right. You mentioned Portugal there. I believe in Portugal, if you get caught with less than a 10-day supply of any drug, you get mandatory medical treatment. Is that, in your opinion, is that too coercive? Yes, it is. You know, and I think it's, it's you know, the context and the cultural context that we are in, in our uh, cities or provinces or countries is really, really important um, to consider when you're looking at a place like Portugal, where social systems, uh, for example, are much stronger um, than they are 
um, say, even in Canada, right? So that people are perhaps more used to dealing with uh, government than they would be here, right? And so there's there's just not the same level of trust, we don't think, as there would be in a place like Portugal for this model to work. Right. Is the goal also, though, to get people into recovery? Absolutely. So this is what the outreach is for. So um, we would be looking at... Um, Outreach that would also be uh, uh, using a peer model and peer-based approaches. We know that's very effective. And uh, working with peers to do outreach um, to uh, people who use substances to refer them to treatment, to refer them to safe, safer places to use. All of those things are part of a comprehensive approach and important. Okay, so then, America, you're waiting, essentially hoping that any time now you're going to hear from the federal government on this. Uh, we're hoping and waiting. and. Um, yeah, I think the the more uh, that uh, people raise this and the more that it gets raised in the news, we appreciate this. And we're going to be seeing, I think, more and more jurisdictions um, applying for exemptions. Well, we'll be, I'm sure, talking to you about that. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Mary Claire Zach is the Managing Director of Social Policy at the City of Vancouver. So the City of Vancouver formally asked the federal government in May of last year for an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, an exemption to allow people to have small amounts of substances on them, such as cocaine, heroin, and fentanyl, essentially to be able to decriminalize certain small amounts of drugs. BC as a whole asked for this too. Toronto has asked for this. They asked for it just a couple of months ago, but there's still no word on what the federal government will do. Oregon has gone down this path and it's a very interesting experiment that they just started in Oregon a few months back wholeheartedly um, and it was approved by a voter measure there. But is it working? I think that's one of the things that, you know, we're going to continue to talk about and take a look at what is happening happening down there. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about our overdose crisis that we have. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but in a different vein right now. It's a growing concern that we have. One of the ways in which the numbers have gotten worse over the last five, six years is the fact that the drugs are changing. We just get used to one thing when, you know, the drug dealers, the drug makers out there switch it up and start putting something else in there that is that is deathly toxic to people. Well, what they're finding now is that's happening again. So there's a service called Get Your Drugs Tested. It's a free drug checking website in Vancouver. And uh, we're going to find out more about what they are finding in drugs right now. Alan Custance joins us now, the site manager of Get Your Drugs Tested. Alan, thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem. First of all, Alan, how does the website work? What do you do? Well, actually, uh, we're a drug checking service in Vancouver. So we have a storefront. Um, so you can come down. Uh, we're open 12 to 8 every day and drop off a sample and we'll test it for you. And so who generally shows up to do this? Is this people who are a little worried about what they're getting? Um, well, uh, with the ever-increasing toxic drug supply, uh, we kind of find ourselves in a unique position where we, we pretty much get everybody, whether that's you know people who use a substance every day or concerned parents trying to like look out for their there are kids who are trying something new or even, you know, just partiers on the weekend. And have things changed in the time that you've been doing this? Like, what is different about the drugs that you're checking? Yeah, I mean, everything seems to be going towards just being increasingly adulterated with things. 
Um, meaning like we're just seeing stuff cut with more different things. Um, there's this kind of general trend with uh, prohibition and uh, the idea is drugs get increasingly more potent over time uh, with prohibition. If you think of cannabis from the beginning of when cannabis started to not, like just before legalization, it got incredibly potent with high THC levels. Um, we're seeing the same with, you know, many different types of drugs. And why is that then? What is the what is the benefit? Because like when I think about that, I think, well, aren't aren't drug dealers then you're kind of killing off your customers? Um, I, it depends if, if you're, if your drug that you're cutting it with does kill your, your customers, um, then that would be an offset, but not all drugs are going to kill somebody. Um, I, I honestly, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure why it's the trend, but, um, uh, it hmm. just seems to be happening. What are you seeing in there now? I understand that you're seeing animal tranquilizers. Yeah. So there's, uh, something called xylazine, um, and it's, uh, it was. It's been quite uh, popular in the states. It's been popping up quite a lot in the states, and recently, um, you know, we're seeing it more and more. Um, it is sort of like an, a tranquilizer um, that we're seeing, you know, either replaced for certain drugs or being cut into into drugs as well. And that's a scary thing when you think it's animal tranquilizers. Is it? Is it a, a, a toxic thing that's being in there? Like, what kind of reaction is that having? Well, I mean, all drugs are chemicals, right? So they're all going to have some form of toxicity and some form of side effects at higher doses. Um, with xylazine in particular, uh, we haven't had much subjective um, uh, feedback from our clients. Um, one client who took it instead of uh, ketamine that it was very strong, very disassociating, and, and quite um, long-lasting as well. Um, but other than ketamine, we're also being uh, seeing it cut into something called down, which is like an opioid mixed with caffeine and sugar. Um, and, you know, as a disassociative, it can be quite alarming taking something you're not expecting and yeah. not really knowing why it's happening. Right. And is it showing up in it's in everything, like in different things, in different forms? Um, I wouldn't say everything. It's kind of limited itself to those sort of downers and um, disassociatives, which is like ketamine. Ketamine is also kind of like an anesthetic at higher doses as well. So it seems to be showing up in more so the the kind of anesthetic drugs. Right. So then, Alan, when that starts to happen, when you when you start to notice something different in these drugs that you are testing, what happens then? Like, do you tell health officials? Yeah, so um, we put out public health alerts on any sort of alarming samples or samples that, you know, might have caused someone to pass away or um, maybe some new drugs that we haven't been seeing swapped for other drugs. Um we would put out a public health alert and that would go through the health authority and through our own website as well. Right. And does this qualify as that? Is that what you've done? Uh, yeah, I think xylazine in the past, because uh, this has been going on for uh, uh, several months now. Um, I believe when for xylazine first came uh, up in our results, we put out a public health alert. 
Right. So this is something that health officials are probably seeing as well. This is, is this the reason why we can't seem to get a hold, do you think, Ellen, on our overdoses? Is because the drugs are always changing. You're seeing that firsthand. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a trend. Uh, the longer prohibition goes on, um, the longer it's going to happen. Uh, I think in the last year, 66 new substances were created. Um, and that's kind of what we're dealing with now, too, is there's all these novel psychoactive substances right. um, in particular, and they're not technically illegal because they don't meet the exact scheduled substance that is illegal. So they fall in this legal gray area where you can readily buy them on the Internet and, um, and they're quite easy to get in large quantities. Right. It's hard to compete against that. Alan, thank you for your time. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate that. Alan Kustens is a site manager of Get Your Drugs Tested. It's a free drug checking service provided in Vancouver. They have a storefront. He said you can go down and and do that. But just that number, 66 new substances in the last year. How can health officials, law enforcement, how could anybody get in front of that when it feels like the people who make this stuff to get people hooked are you know, 10 steps ahead. It feels like constantly. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.